Good morning. Thanks for the little like kind of spread around. Good morning is back to me. It's great. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. We are continuing in our sermon series looking at resurrection encounters with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've really loved the space to kind of journey more slowly around the Easter story. Um, I guess in the lead up to Easter, we were following Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and the cross over a number of months. And then we had Easter weekend when we celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then over these last few weeks, we've looked at some of the ways that Jesus chooses to reveal himself in, as, in the resurrection to his disciples, those whom he loves. I think it's really, just really telling that that's what he chooses to prioritize as resurrection form, right? He could have gone to Pilate and said, hey, look at me, I raised from the dead. <laughs> But what he does instead, actually, is goes and meets with and ministers to the people he loves. Um, There's just another example of that this morning. We're looking at Jesus' encounter with Peter. But before we read it together, I want to retell in shorthand a storybook that was given to me to read to Micah. And the story is called, This Is Not My Hat. Anyone, anyone read this book before? Anyone aware of it? It's award-winning, apparently. It's a very good book. <laughs> So just to walk through some of the story, so this little fish has found this hat, found, stolen this hat, and is explaining to himself why, why it's okay that he's stolen this hat. So he begins by saying, well, you know, nobody will notice that it's gone. And it's like, even if they do notice it's gone, then they won't know it's me. Besides, it suits me better anyway. And so he kind of goes through this whole process of kind of justifying this theft. And in the midst of that, you suddenly discover that the big fish who owns the hat knows that the hat's gone and knows that the small fish has stolen the hat and sees the small fish swimming away. And so you finish the book with this last page and the big fish is sleeping with his hat firmly back on his head and the small fish is gone. <laughs> I'm sure you're all asking the question, where did the small fish go? That was a question I asked the first time I read it. So I asked Google, obviously. I searched through the blogs and uh, the answer is the small fish was eaten by the big fish. There you go. <laughs> I've not read it to Micah yet because it was a bit harrowing for me. <laughs> but I just, I, I don't like unresolved stories, right? There's, there's something in all of us, I think, that likes a sense of resolution. We like to see a kind of redemptive arc to things. We like the story to have gone more like the small fish apologizes and the big fish and the small fish become best friends. Well, obviously it didn't happen in that case. This morning, I want to reflect on some of Peter's story because Peter, in a very human way, has found himself in a bit of a mess. He's made a number of wrong decisions, and he's abandoned Jesus at the lowest moment. And until John chapter 21, which we're going to be reading later on, we don't really know what's going to happen next. If, if anything, it feels like there's no opportunity for reconciliation. There's, that there might not be opportunity to see Peter restored. And so I wanted to just unpack some of the journey that leads Peter to this point. Because I think it's important, before we reach John chapter 21, where we then see the way that Jesus chooses to lovingly and deeply restore Peter. So we're going to be reading through different parts of John, if you're up for joining with me. Up for that? You might need to flick some pages, good. And we're looking at John chapter 13, we're going to begin there. So in these days leading up to Jesus' death, there's this moment, and many of us will be very familiar with it, where Jesus is sitting with his disciples, eating. And he says to them, one of you in this room is going to betray me. And you can imagine in that space, it would have been such a tense atmosphere, right? And all of them would have been asking the question, is that me? Am I capable of that? Am I the one that's going to do that? 
And we know that Judas finds a reason to leave the room. But then Jesus continues. He continues to explain what is about to happen. And we'll just pick up from verse 36 in chapter 13. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And we know in Luke's gospel that then Peter declares in front of his friends, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. But despite him having said that, you could just imagine in that room, Peter's been called out, but not only amongst his friends, amongst co-followers of Jesus, but not only that, for something he hasn't even done yet. Kind of the weight that must have been on his shoulders following that day. But within a few days, Jesus is arrested and he is being summoned, being questioned, he's beaten and flogged. And Peter is following on at a distance, watching all of this happen. We're in John chapter 18, which is just a few days on. And looking from, reading from verse 17. So Peter is watching at a distance in the courtyard beside the servants and the workers. And he's standing beside a charcoal fire, keeping warm. That's what, we've, that's what we read, which I think is an important detail. So let's just keep note of that. He's warming himself by a charcoal fire. And then one of the servants turns to him in verse 17. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. And then skip a few verses when it comes back to the same conversation. Verse 25. Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it saying, I am not. And one of his high priest servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. And we know from other accounts in the Gospels that then Peter weeps. And you know, I think we'd be right there with him if that had happened to us. Everything that Jesus said had come to pass. And there's no real opportunity for him to recover from that, right? Within a day, Jesus is dead. And the last interaction he'd had was to deny that he even knew that Jesus knew, knew Jesus at all. And I wonder actually in some ways that even Jesus rising from the dead would have been hugely tied to that moment of, of failure, right? Like not only did he deny Jesus, not only did he abandon him at his lowest moment, but actually Jesus has risen from the dead. And so that means that he is who he says he is, he's Messiah, and yet um, at his lowest moment, Peter didn't believe enough to stand with him. You can imagine what Peter must be thinking. How on earth can I even begin to reapproach Jesus now? Surely I've messed everything up. The shame, I think, that he must have been carrying at that point was, would have been pretty unbearable, right? In fact, we see some of the markers of him trying to work through it himself later on, and I'll, I'll point them out as we see them. But for now, I just wanted to highlight that there's a difference between failure and shame. I know so this is kind of quite heavy. <laughs> there's a difference between failure and shame. Because mo- failure is the moment where we recognize that we've done something wrong, right? Whereas shame reveals itself as us feeling like there's something wrong with us. So whereas failure tells you that you've done something wrong, shame says there's something wrong with you. And all of us, I'm sure, have experienced that kind of response, that reaction when we have 
when we've failed, when we've messed up. Maybe you experienced it in something of your family life growing up. Maybe you felt defined by places of failure. Maybe it's something you're in the midst of right now, that you're aware of a place in your life where you have messed up in, in your relationship with someone else, in relationship with God, whatever it might be. And you're maybe aware even of the fact that it's replaying itself over and over in your mind, and you're allowing it to define you. But if you have found yourself there sometime, at some point, and I have definitely many times, it's also quite a powerful motivator, isn't it? It can drive you to do quite a lot when you feel like that. You can try and do as much as you possibly can to kind of validate yourself, to bring kind of reconciliation. But it's a very dangerous place to sit, shame, in a place of shame. There's a theologian called Will Vanderhart, and he's a theologian and pastor, and he writes a lot about shame. And he says that there are certain characteristics that we see when someone is, is kind of carrying shame. What shame does is it tells us that we don't belong. That's the first thing. It limits our potential, and it steals our sense of purpose. It tells us we don't belong, it limits our potential, and it steals our sense of purpose. It's quite deep stuff, isn't it? It's quite identity-forming stuff. So if you feel like that's something kind of that resonates with you right now, then I just want to encourage you, I think that in the same way that Jesus is about to meet with Peter and restore him, that Jesus wants to do that same work in us this morning. Let me just even maybe just take a moment to pray for us, particularly for anyone who feels like that's something that, that is weighing on you heavily. Yeah, Jesus, even in this moment now, as we continue to see the ways that you worked amongst your friends, that you want to work this, this way with us, we invite you to continue to be with us, at work in us this morning. We invite you to be doing a work of restoration in our lives, in our hearts. Amen. So thankfully, Jesus steps into the middle of Peter's shame. And I just want to read, so we're going to read John chapter 21 now, and reading from verse 1. So afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, said Peter. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So this, I think, is a clear marker of, of Peter trying to reconcile some of this stuff. Just to pause here. This is him trying to deal with his shame. He's just trying to do something. That's what we do, isn't it? When we're trying, we just want to do something, anything, something to validate ourselves, something to give us a sense of value or purpose or positive contribution. And for Peter, that was fishing. He knew how to fish. He's like, well, I don't know what else to do, but I do know how to fish, so I'm going to go and do that. But for you, that might be something else. It might be exercise. It might be overcompensating by being more productive in work. It might be actually kind of escaping it and in, in going into a world of films and TV box sets and books. Maybe it's being overly generous with people. Maybe it's serving more in church even. There's lots of different ways that can come out as a way of trying to validate ourselves when we're feeling like that. But for Peter, it was fishing. So off he goes to fish, but it... Unfortunately, he doesn't bring any relief because he doesn't catch anything all night. 
And so you could almost get the sense of it just keeps getting worse. There's no way for him to come out of this. But thankfully, hope is coming. And we'll see that in verse 4. Early in the morning, it's verse 4. Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Again, just pause here for a moment. We're supposed to see the humor in that. Like, the boat's right beside the shore. Peter's, uh, Jesus is called out. Peter puts on his jacket to jump into the water, to swim the short distance to the shore, leaving all the disciples behind to, to take the fish into the shore. Right? We're supposed to see that that's like, it's a bit of a silly decision as they kind of probably caught up with him as he was trying to swim to the shore with his heavy coat kind of swimming around. But again, it's just telling of, of where he was, right? He just wanted to do something to show Jesus that he wanted to see reconciliation, that he wanted to rebuild relationship with him. He just wanted to do anything. Verse 9. They land on shore. See that? They landed together. I wonder whether that means they all managed to make it at the same time. They landed on shore, and they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. Yet again, he's first to try and just do something, just do anything. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Again, I'm going to pause here because there's so much going on. And I think while Jesus hasn't actually come to address Peter specifically yet, he's laying the groundwork here for that restoration work to happen. I think it's important to note the location actually where Jesus chooses to do this work because he chooses to do it over breakfast, right? And there's a few key, place, key details, I think, that are in there on purpose for us to see and, and note. The first is that Jesus is making breakfast for his disciples. That's the first thing. And so where shame tells us that we don't belong, the first thing that Jesus did was to welcome Peter around the table. Before he had said any words to Peter, he had shown by his actions that he was welcome that he was invited, that he still belongs. And, you know, that's not an unusual way for God to work, right? We see it actually in a number of occasions through scripture where the first thing that God does when he's interacting with his people is to give them food, to walk them around the table. It's an analogy and imagery that Jesus uses all the time. And I, actually, I don't think it's a coincidence that he gifts us communion as one of the primary ways that we're promised to meet with Jesus. So as we eat the bread and drink the wine, what we're reminded of is we're welcomed around the table of God and not because of anything that we've done, but because of the work that Jesus has done. So that is incredible news for us this morning, isn't it? No matter how we might feel, no matter the places of shame or sin in our lives, Jesus invites us back to the table. God's love still chases us down. 
you still belong to Jesus this morning. We still belong to Jesus, no matter how you might feel, no matter the failures that we might be replaying in our heads. Jesus still invites us back to the table. So that's the first thing that we see in this section. The second thing is that the breakfast is cooking on a charcoal fire, which is a small detail, but I think it's an important one. Has anyone had a barbecue recently? Anyone been enjoying the warm weather? I, I had a barbecue yesterday. It was at a South African braai, which is lovely, incredible meats. It's very good. I was there yesterday. But there's, there's a distinctive smell to charcoal, isn't there? Like it kind of sticks to your clothes. It lingers after you've finished eating it. And I don't think it's, it's, it's coincidental that, that, that John chooses to note the fact that it's a charcoal fire that they're sitting around. Because only a few days earlier, he chooses to write down the fact that Peter was standing at a fire at the point where he denies Jesus. Smell has this way of bringing memories really clearly back into our minds, doesn't it? Like, um, for me, there's this specific kind of hedgerow bush that if someone's cutting it when I walk past and I get the scent of it, I can immediately see my granddad's garden and I see him, he wore like these like rubbishy tracky bottoms, had like Einstein hair blowing all over the place, like would make loud noises clearing his throat and trim the hedge. I can visualize all of it whenever, it just comes so clear back into my mind whenever I walk that, through that kind of hedgerow smell. Maybe you maybe have similar experiences. Smell has this way of drawing us right back into memory, doesn't it? And so I, I'm convinced that Peter's sitting here at breakfast with a charcoal fire in front of him and smelling that and, and replaying over and over in his mind the few days before where he denied Jesus. Jesus didn't set that scene to torture him. Not, it's not to add to any sense of shame around what he'd done. But I think actually the opposite is true. That Jesus knows that to restore Peter fully, he needs to enter into that place of failure with him, to sit with him, to bring restoration specifically in that place. Because, you know, like that is, that's a literal translation for the word salvation. There's, it, there's Greek word sozo, which means healing and wholeness. So it's not just like a once activity. Jesus is interested in bringing us into wholeness and healing in him. So he wants to restore all of Peter. He need, and so to do that, he needs to return to that place of failure and offer redemption in it. Which isn't a comfortable experience, right? We probably, it's not really the kind of experience we really want to be in very often. But actually, it's going to get more uncomfortable in the next coming verses as Peter actually, and Jesus actually begin to have a dialogue backwards and forth, back and forth. But it, it is God's work. It's his work restoring and redeeming him. And God still works that same way with us today, I think. And, you know, it could be dangerous, I think, and easy for us to build a kind of theology which says something like this. It says, you know, grace has covered all of our sins, and the slate's been wiped clean, all of which is true. And therefore, uh, it doesn't matter what the stuff that we've done. Actually, God doesn't really think about it at all. He's kind of forgotten about it. Or maybe even he doesn't care what we do because he accepts all of us uh, because of the grace of being saved. Do you know, there's this kind of, we could easily join a few dots together. But that's, I don't think that's true. Yes, the punishment for our sin is completely covered. It's completely cleared. We, that is the good news. That is the work that Jesus has done on the cross. But God still cares about the stuff that we do. 
God still cares about the places where we mess up, the places where we sin, where we choose to turn away from him and act self-centeredly. Because I think it gets, he knows and we know, that that's destructive. It gets in the way of us growing to look more and more like him. And he wants to restore that in us. He wants us to become more and more like Jesus. So where, where shame, again, limits our potential, the work that Jesus is doing is restoring full potential in us. God is interested in seeing us growing into greater and greater levels of wholeness, into more and more Christ-likeness each and every day. And to do that, he invites us to address those places in our lives where we have fallen short, where we've messed up, so that we can know greater measures of wholeness in him. You know, the practice of confession is something that we've kind of lost a little bit in the Western church. We don't really talk about it particularly positively, maybe because of how it's been misused. But it's actually such a gift to us because it's not something that we do because it, as a way of just beating ourselves up about the things that we do wrong, you know? The practice of confession actually is an opportunity for us to name before God the places where we've fallen short so that he might bring restoration in those places, so that he might bring healing to us in those places and greater wholeness in him. So as we come towards the end of this passage, and I come, as I come towards the end fully, the third place of restoration that we see in Peter is a restored purpose. And we're looking from verse 15. Um, and just as we're about to read it, just to help visualize it, it's likely, well, it doesn't say explicitly, but it's likely that Jesus has now taken Peter on a walk along the seaside. They've finished eating breakfast, and they do this deep and lasting work together. Verse 15. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. For each time Peter denied Jesus, Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to affirm his love for him again. He says, do you love me? He says to Peter. And with each affirmation, you see Jesus kind of peeling back another layer to see that restoration work happen. And the third ask is the hardest. It actually hurts Peter to be asked it. We read that. The last denial, but also the last affirming word, the last restoring word of Jesus. Peter is restored. But you know, it's interesting to know that what the dialogue doesn't go like this. It doesn't go, uh, do you love me, Peter? And Peter responds saying, you know that I love you. And then Jesus is like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> you sure? Do you love me? Okay, that's cool. What he actually does is far deeper. He actually gives Jesus, uh, Peter a new purpose each time. He calls him again. He says, feed my sheep. Look after my people. Which, when you think about it, is an incredible thing, really, isn't it? 
it just reflects the character and heart of God for us. Because Jesus is so incredibly patient with Peter. Peter completely messed everything up, right? He denied Jesus. He kind of abandoned him, walked away. And yet, when Jesus invites him back, he gives him something which actually he cares really deeply about. He says, Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. Care for the people I care about. Peter doesn't deserve to really be treated, given that kind of responsibility now, right? And yet, that's the way that God works. That's the way that Jesus restores. That's the kind of opportunities he gives us. That's who God is, through and through. So where shame steals our purpose, Jesus lovingly restores purpose in him. But the key to all of this, just to close, is we need to let Jesus do that work in us, right? And through us. It isn't automatic. And it's pretty uncomfortable at times, right? It is a work that will lead us to greater measures of wholeness in him. It's a work which restores a sense of belonging, which increases our, our potential in Jesus and also restores our purpose in him. So my invitation to us this morning is let's, let's lean into that. Let's choose to surrender more each day to that work in our lives so that we might grow more and more to look like Jesus. Why don't I pray for us? Maybe, why, would you st- why don't you stand with me as we do? And this is something that's good for all of us to do, no matter whether there's huge things that we're thinking of right now, or whether there's very, very small things uh, that we're aware of, even just as we've been speaking. Um, as, a, as a kind of outward sign to say, we want to choose to give you all of ourselves, to put your hands out in front of us. So if you feel comfortable, why don't you do that with me? Put your hands out together. Oh Jesus, thank you for your love for us. That you care so deeply about us. That you want to see everything in us restored and healed. That you're not content for us to hold some things in the dark, but you want us to bring everything into the light so you can form us and shape us in your image. And this morning we invite that work afresh in our lives, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's revealing and exposing, because we trust that you're a good God who loves us. And we trust that when we give you that stuff, that you will work far beyond what we could expect or imagine. We choose afresh to trust you this morning. We trust you with all of ourselves. Say this in Jesus' name. Amen.